Hello, and welcome to the Road to Autonomy podcast. I am your host, Grayson Brulte. The Road to Autonomy podcast is brought to you in part by Florida Internet and Television. It's time to cut the tax on tech. Hello and welcome to The Road to Autonomy. I am your host, Grayson Brulte. On today's episode, we're absolutely honored to have James Gowers, Vice President of Strategy and Business Development, Perceptive Autonomata. Welcome to the podcast, James. Thank you, Grayson. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm very happy to have you here. You have a, an incredible story that I didn't learn until re- doing research for this podcast that during your time at Harvard, you were the captain of the Harvard Business School soccer team, and you led that team to two national championships. First of all, extremely cool. What was that experience like? <laughs> You're taking me all the way back, Grayson. It was just a great experience, right, to compete and achieve something with, with your friends. You know, quite a lot of hard work. We, we traveled. We had to obviously sacrifice time. But we all enjoyed the sport, right? We enjoy soccer. There's a sort of a passion. I grew up in Germany, um, so soccer for me is is sort of part of my childhood and growing up. And I still play it and ref it and officiate it today and coach it. So, at the time, it was just a great experience being able to compete with your friends. Uh, you know, it's sort of this healthy body, healthy mind issue as well, right? So it's it's important to study hard, but I think it's also important to take care of of your the sort of physical aspects of who you are and the body, right? And and so um, it's that combination. But we had a great time. It was awesome. To be a captain, you have to have leadership. And I'm a big baseball fan. There's all these great Yankee captains, and they always had the one trait of incredible leadership. Did your background as an Army Ranger in the German Federal Armed Forces prepare you for that leadership role? You know, uh, maybe indirectly. That experience was definitely, at the time, as a, as a young man, right, it, it certainly influenced or shaped my character in the same way that other major experiences shape you, right, when, as you're growing up. And there's certainly an element of grit that you develop uh, in the army. But I think leadership probably is too big of a reach. I would say definitely shaped the way I think about teamwork. It, you know, it certainly pushed me to the limits of um, what I could can do mentally and physically at the time, right? And you don't realize how far you can be pushed. So indirectly, yes, but direct leadership, probably no, in my case. So you have this experience with the armed forces, you're the captain of a soccer team. So you obviously learn teamwork, which is really incredible. And then you've had a long career negotiating deals and building teams. Was that teamwork there as you start to build teams with the companies you've worked for? You've had these incredible skills of of in the armed forces, winning national championships, you've seen the highs and you've seen the lows. Was that did that influence you at all? Yeah, I think it definitely shapes. It definitely shaped me, right? In in the way I'm, I think about how teams should should function effectively and contributions from individuals. Um, I think the one important thing is that being part of a team or even being a leader doesn't mean that you. You're autocratic, right? It's it's uh, a really more important way to lead is by influencing and just being being a solid part of the team and you know carrying your weight and leading by example. So I think that experience certainly over the years also helping to build tech companies, right? It's it's a very unique environment when you're sort of trying to create tech companies from scratch uh, and help grow them and build them. It's it's if you if you're thinking about this of the military uh, analogy here, it's Large companies are more like, you know, standing armies, right? Like large, massive units, systems. 
But a startup is really more like a special forces unit. And yes, you have command and control in, in a special forces unit, but it's much more fluid. And in fact, somebody who isn't officially in charge might become the leader in a particular part of the engagement with an enemy or, or a certain part of the, the deployment, right? Because they have certain backgrounds or certain skills that make them qualified in that moment to be a leader, right? So leader, I think leadership is needs to be defined much more fluidly, especially in startups. And uh, I think that's part of probably my experience there that I bring to startups as well. Leadership has to set high standards, though, of course, right? You can't, this is not about necessarily always consensus or the lowest common denominator, right? You have to make sure that you have the right team members that, that you pull together, eight players, and then you set the bar high, right? And everybody wants to achieve that bar, reach that bar. So yes, in a nutshell, I mean, those experiences definitely shape the way I think about leadership today and uh, what it takes to build startups. I love what you said. Leadership has to set high standards. You're 100% right. You need leaders to to make the hard decision if you're going for a financing round and or if you're going to do a deal with a customer. You have to have a leader that will make a hard, decisive decision that's the, the best for the company and the investors and the employees and not necessarily put it out to consensus. You have to make that. You're in battle. You have to make that decision on the spot. And, and you've done a lot of really great stuff in the startup space and you've done stuff in consulting at Accenture. James, what first got you interested in autonomous vehicles and why did you decide to join the industry? Yeah, it's an interesting question. It's an exciting space. I actually have I've always lived very close to literally walking distance from, from Waymo's headquarters in, in, in Mountain View. So I, for the longest time, I, I always saw you know, the Waymo, Waymo cars um, testing and driving around in, in, in my, my community, my neighborhood. Um, and I was always fascinated by the technology itself. And not just the technology, but also the business implications of it. So it's always, you know, very cool technology, very interesting, lots of changes that it can that it can bring. And so I had a, and then then I have a had an opportunity to to jump into this space because of a friend of mine, Mark Wheeler. He at the time was at Google, and he in the Google Maps team, and he was part of the team, the senior team that built Google Maps, Google Earth. And he decided to leave co-found a company called DeepMap. Uh, it's basically building HD maps for self-driving cars. And he told me that he was leaving. We met um, and he said, look, we need advice. My background is not business. I, you know, Myself and my co-founder, James Wu, we need some advice on how to build a company, how to raise money, um, how should we do this, the business model around that. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely, right? This is exciting. It's self-driving cars. It's, uh, you know, Mark is a, Mark Wheeler, by the way, is an amazing, amazing individual on so many levels, but he's the real deal, right? He can really build these things in the right way. He can he can pull it off. One of the smartest guys that I know I've ever met. And then, of course, James Wu, who's who's the co-founder, tremendous energy, right? He, he helped build DeepMap to where it is today uh, as a CEO. So I basically jumped in and helped them uh, at the beginning. And that's how I got into it. So it's it's sort of partly passion and interest and location, um, but also just friendship, right, and network. So it wasn't a, a grand big plan. It just happened opportunistically in many ways. And I jumped right in and I love it, right? There's so much about this space that makes it exciting. It's 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 hardware and software. It's deployed technology that you can see every day. It impacts people's lives in so many different ways, right? It's international. It's you know, massive capital is going into it, right? It has implications beyond and 
beyond just AV tech itself. So just an exciting area to be working in. So it was a very easy decision for me when Mark approached me at the time for help. It was an easy decision for me to, to, to jump in and I've never looked back. What first got you attracted to Perceptive Autonomata? So I think Perceptive Automata is, is came out of an introduction to Sam, uh, Sam Anthony, our co-founder and CTO at the time. And he, um, he and I met, uh, I, I flew out to Boston, you know, I live in Silicon Valley, flew out to Boston and we, um, we, we discussed uh, the work he was doing with his team. And it was early stage, pre-Series A. And I felt they were doing some really interesting, important work uh, to enable autonomous vehicles. And they clearly needed uh, uh, someone to, or Sam needed somebody to partner with him on the business side. Uh, we also, at the time, there was a, uh, you know, another CEO at the time who was a co-founder uh, who helped to build the company as well. So I joined, I joined Sam and, and it, at the time it was Sid and uh, helped to uh, uh, raise Series A and, and grow the company to where it is today. The company's come a long way. I mean, being spun out of the, the Harvard Vision Lab to raising a Series A to commercializing your product. What has been the general excitement inside the company as it, it, it's grown and it continues to grow? So it's hard work, right? As a startup, it's, you raise a Series A, you, uh, uh, you get a, a healthy amount of funding. Um, we, at that time, if you look at the seed, seed stage and Series A together, about $20 million. And then you have to roll up your sleeves and do the hard work, right? Series A is more about the vision, more about the claims and having some initial proof points. But then you have to work to deliver on those claims, right? And so that by the time you, you raise Series B, you have real deployments, you have real hard evidence to show that whatever you're building works in the real world and that you can scale from there, right? And that's Series B. And so getting from Series A to Series B is hard work. The team is excited, of course. Um, the, the sort of pandemic effects of the pandemic have certainly slowed us down um, and or the industry in general in, in some ways in terms of partnering at least, right? And, and reassessing certain things and rebuilding certain things. But you know, the, the team is excited. Uh, we're working on something extremely unique and very important for the deployment of autonomous vehicles. So there's a, a lot of potential for us. It, it definitely is very unique. And there's a 2018 Bloomberg article that talked about the company and it stated that automated vehicles, human-like intuition for the road. That's what the team's trying to develop. Could you please explain how it's possible? Because it's really, really smart. Yeah. So if you think about driving right in a human dominated road environment and there's clearly the 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 physics of that right so how do you estimate trajectories of of vehicles right might they intersect with your you know uh, planned path Uh, what about that pedestrian you know he or she's moving in a certain way they potentially be stepping into the road so the physics of all that is what is the easier part in many ways it's not easy it's it's hard work but Tracking objects in space and projecting where they might be at any moment in time and focusing on the physics of that is something that the industry, the AV industry, is, is working hard on, right? But if you think about driving, though, when, when humans drive, we, we do more than just use physics to make these sort of predictions about what maybe a pedestrian want to do, might want to do next. We use social cues, you know, body language, sign, signage, you know, sign language, um, uh, hand movements, gaze, things like that, right, to communicate. So driving is also a social activity. And it actually makes humans very effective 
driving, especially in urban or city environments, right, with lots of pedestrians and cyclists. And even uh, drive, human driver to human driver communication is also important, right? You had an intersection with four stop signs, right? So there's a lot of communication that goes on between drivers, uh, who goes first, who goes next. So we capture that part of the, the, the problem, right? Or we solve for that problem. We, we're developing machine learning models that can do that uniquely human thing, which is glance at pedestrians and in an instant make powerful predictions about somebody's intent to cross, for example, or their awareness, situational awareness. So that's, that's what we do. And, and it's, it's really an essential piece of safe and uh, smooth and predictable driving for AVs in city environments and urban environments. Situational awareness is interesting. Years ago in the New York Times, Bob Dylan talked about his love of New York and how he hated going to New York now and seeing everybody walk around the city with AirPods in because they're not, they're not carrying the sounds of New York. And it's a very incredible city with different sounds. Is your system picking up if somebody has headphones on or AirPods in that they might not necessarily be paying attention? They could possibly jut out in front of the road or, I don't know, trip on the curb, for example? Yes, it does, right? So our machine learning models are able to uh, learn that. We don't explicitly necessarily train a model to say, you know, who's wearing headphones, but indirectly, right, the models learn that uh, to the extent that there is correlation or causation between somebody uh, listening to headphones and behaving in a certain way in a road environment, our models capture that. Yeah, definitely. In the same way that when you and I look at someone like that, right, we're able to make some predictions or mod modulate the way we drive potentially, right, because we can see somebody might be distracted or might not be paying attention. Uh, so yes, that's, that's something we can capture. How about, let's see another scenario here, because now I'm, I'm, this is getting fascinating. How about if there's an individual that has their phone up to their face and they're walking and staring at their phone? Is that another thing that you can look for? Because this person is obviously not paying attention. It's a very good chance they could walk into the intersection because they're kind of in their own little world. Yes, yes, exactly. That, that also, right? So our models can, can pick up on that and learn that. You, know, you often have people that are walking while they're typing on their smartphones, right? Looking down, right? And they kind of... It's interesting though, right? Humans are able to maintain pretty good situational awareness despite doing that. Now it's not always safe, but we have peripheral vision. We have a sense of where we are, right? Oftentimes a pedestrian would walk closer to other pedestrians uh, and sense that, okay, that pedestrian ahead of me is walking so I can walk and people keep walking. So yes, but our models can pick that up. It's, uh, it's one of those uh, powerful things that humans can do pretty easily. And you've captured the attention of investors. And I want to expand upon what you said and read you something that Jim Alder, founding managing director of the Toyota AI Ventures, said in a Medium post announcing the funding for the company. Uh, Jim stated the following, as I've said before, cars are social. They exist alongside other human-operated vehicles, cyclists and pedestrians. When we're behind the wheel, we constantly survey the roads looking for clues to help predict what other people will do. Will that teenage skateboarder jaywalk? Will the minivan driver speed up as I try to make an unprotected left-hand turn? Who goes first at a four-way stop sign if we all arrive at the same time? People use a theory of mind to face those kinds of split-second decisions all of the time. However, what comes relatively easy to us humans is incredibly difficult for autonomous vehicles. To improve safety for passengers and pedestrians alike, it is so important to have an intuitive self-driving system that is able to recognize, understand, and predict human behavior. Summed up brilliantly. Yeah, this is a really good way of, of, of thinking about what we do and why it's important. And Jim has been a great 
partner for us, right? It's a really critical part of, of you know, safe and, and confident driving in the real world. I mean, if, we, if we're developing a system that is in a very, very simple, constrained operational design uh, domain, you know, ODD, then this is probably not, not required, right? You can just focus on, on the physics of things and it's it's simple environments not many pedestrians or no pedestrians and you can you can go with the simple approach but imagine driving in a city like or downtown new york or in san francisco or boston places like that or european cities the amount of pedestrians the, the amount of chaos that pedestrians and cyclists and 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 the density of these road networks and these unpredictable behaviors kind of creates for an av very, very difficult. There are many, many cases or intersections where the AV would just simply get stuck. And there's a lot of social communication that happens, right? And just being able to capture that is so essential. And doing it right is important. And imagine if if you're in an AV driving in, in say, San Francisco or downtown New York City, and this AV constantly hesitates and breaks and slows down for no reason or comes to a complete stop when it doesn't have to come to a complete stop. You as a passenger in that robotaxi are going to feel very uncomfortable and most likely will not go again, right? You'll do it once and, and you, you might feel nauseous even. So this is a, this is a really important part of a, a deployed AV fleet. It's okay during an R&D stage, initial development stage to improvise on this stuff, but it's, uh, it's really critical for broad scale deployment, especially in, in city environments or urban environments, you know, in suburban environments. Maybe, for example, in Chandler, right? If you think about Waymore One in Chandler, Arizona, Phoenix, it's a very suburban environment. Very few pedestrians, very few cyclists. You know, pedestrians in parking lots at Walmart or places like that, certainly, but relatively few. And you can deploy and you don't have to worry so much about messy pedestrians, right? That won't work in, in San Francisco or Boston or New York, right? So it's really important that the, the things that we're solving for are deployed on these these systems for for broad scale deployment. So you mentioned Boston, which is a great city, incredible food, and just an, an absolutely wonderful city. But what comes to mind is cobblestone. Boston has a lot of cobblestone streets. They have some quirky streets that are very tight, dense driving environments where you have students on bicycles or people walking. Does your system take in with the cobblestone that? Uh, an individual, just Mrs. Doe could be crossing the street and her heel could get caught in the cobblestone and she might fall. Like, since Are you looking at those unique elements of, of where you're working with your customers that could affect the vehicle or affect the way that a pedestrian acts? Yeah, there's certainly, let's call it localization, right? Or customization, depending on geography. So there's certain unique behaviors that pedestrians demonstrate or show when they're in certain cities, right? So for example, more extreme case, building a model for say Tokyo, right? With with different cultural factors, behaviors potentially, and different rules of the road potentially would be very would be different from building a model for, you know, LA. It's just or New York City, right? There's some differences. So our models can capture those differences. The specific example you used, you know, that's that's I think solvable using just simple object tracking, right? So if this lady, you know, gets stuck with her heels and, and trips just normal physics can track that and detect that, right? That motion, that change in motion vector and, and react uh, appropriately. So that's not an issue. But, it, but broadly speaking, right, there is an element of, of localization, so to speak, right? Cultural norms, 
rules of the road that are unique to certain environments. And just the built environment itself changes the way people behave, right? So as you said, like the, the sort of downtown Boston cobble street type, type setup, or maybe in Europe, similar, right? People behave much more confidently and aggressively around cars. You know, jaywalking is common. Uh, you have pedestrians just walking in the road towards you, right? And obviously speeds are much lower as well, typically in those environments. So these things affect the way humans behave, both as drivers and as pedestrians or cyclists. And our models can capture that. How about another scenario? I'll give you two. One, well, let's use Fenway. The game's getting out and people tend to, they want to get to where they're going, to the train or... Are you predicting for that or over in Europe at a football game gets out and individuals spill into the streets? Is that Are you training your models for scenarios like that that will become commonplace as vehicles are deployed because vehicles will be picking individuals up at those stadiums to take them home or take them to their hotel? Yes, absolutely. Right. So our models can deal with a massive amount of pedestrians at the same time. And there's certain certain behaviors that, that these sort of crowds exhibit, right? And and we can capture that as well and train our models to, to accommodate that. Yes, take, take account of that. So I'm going to go on the record here and saying that your model, the way that you're building your system is going to make our roads safer, not just for passengers in the vehicle, but for pedestrians. And I think it's something that you and the team should be extremely proud of. And you posted um, a really great video during your IEEE presentation that you gave in in May of last year, where you showed a, a, a Waymo vehicle, I believe it was a Mountain View. And there was an ambulance coming. You couldn't see the ambulance. And you walked through that whole scenario where the Waymo vehicle was able to detect the ambulance so it didn't get in the way. Was that something that, like, for example, was that perception or how was that able to do it? Because Waymo was making sure that the ambulance could get you know, the person to the hospital without clogging the intersection. How was that possible? Does your system do stuff like that as well? Yeah. So that's actually a fascinating example, I think, of, of how AV technology can make a big difference on our roads. Um, so this was, I happened to be driving behind a Waymo in, uh, at the intersection of, of El Camino and San Antonio in, in Mountain View, Los Altos area, which is actually very close to Waymo's headquarters. And I was happened to be behind it. It was a red light and, and El Camino is sort of a three, four lane road, uh, both directions. And it was a pretty big intersection. And we were all sort of waiting at the red light. And I had my dash cam on at the time, which was lucky. And suddenly the, the Waymo turns its hazards lights on. And, and I'm thinking at that moment, oh, malfunction. Let's see what happens next. How do I get around this car, right? How do I get around the Waymo? That was my initial reaction because it was so unusual, right? It never normally happens in, in traffic. And uh, the light turns green. It still has its hazard lights on. It just stays there stationary. It just waits. All the human drivers, you know, obviously start driving through the intersection. And at this point, I'm getting a little restless. And then suddenly I see an ambulance approaching from the other direction, right, uh, on the other side. And the moment the ambulance had passed through most of the intersection to continue driving past us, right, parallel and, and away from us, that the Waymo car turned its hazard lights off and, and started driving and, and through the intersection, right? So at that moment, I realized it was doing the right thing legally. It didn't want to block the intersection just in case the ambulance was going to turn turn left through the intersection, right? So the Waymo vehicle was able to detect the approaching ambulance through its sensors, right? Long-range sensors, LIDAR, for example. Um, and then there's something about the shape of, of that vehicle and also the sounds, by the way. It can pick up the sounds, um, the siren sounds. 
and the lights, right? The emergency lights that are flashing. So it was able to determine that's an ambulance approaching and, and it basically decided to stop and do the legal thing and stop. Human drivers were just oblivious, right? We were listening to music, we were distracted. We want to get sort of get through that intersection quickly. But yeah, there was a pretty interesting uh, example, the power of AV tech, I think, in that case. The power of the AV tech was, was human intuition. If, if you were paying attention, like you should be, hopefully driving, that you would have saw that coming and you would have done something similar or tried to pull pull over to the side of the road. And human intuition is something that your company's working a lot on. How are you developing human intuition for autonomous vehicles? Yeah, so there's sort of some secret sauce that we deploy, and it's really in in the way we create training data for our uh, machine learning models. So as we discussed before, right, the, the, the humans have this unique ability to glance at pedestrians and make some immediate, instantaneous, effortless predictions about somebody's intent based on social cues, you know, things like body language, et cetera. And we don't even really know how we do it. It's so effortless for us, this task. It's very easy for us. Every, anybody can do this. And, but if I asked you, well, how do you do it? You wouldn't be able to tell me. You wouldn't be able to say, well, these are the seven reasons for why in that instant I decided that pedestrian has no intent to cross, even though they might be close to the close to the road or even close to a crosswalk. But you you have a high confidence, right? You can predict that with a high degree of confidence, but you can't tell me what are the seven or ten or twenty, you know, reasons for why you decided that to be the case. And so there is a challenge, right? How do we capture that? How do we extract that information from our human brain, so to speak, and, and uh, from human observers and capture that in a way that we can turn into training data for machine learning models, right? So a lot of the work we do, or some of the methods that we deploy, allow us to capture that, that know-how that isn't really accessible to us as humans. We capture that indirectly and then train our machine learning models. So that's sort of the part of, part of our secret source. Obviously, there's other work we do that make this uh, make this a successful product, but but that's at the core of it. That's that's the big challenge. This is interesting. And, and Sam Anthony, the co-founder and CTO, stated something very similar. He said, "Driving is more than solving a physics problem. In addition to identifying objects and people around you, you're constantly making judgments about what's in the mind of those people." Correct. So your machines are are doing that to make the roads safer for everyone. Correct. Right. So our models are able to in real time look at, so to speak, infinite number of pedestrians and make predictions about them, right? And they can make a prediction about a pedestrian standing near a crosswalk, but no intent to cross. And we can make that prediction. So the AV doesn't have to come to a stop, right? The reason why it's important, it's not just because you want to get from A to B, you know, in, in an efi- time efficient manner, but you also want to reduce the the, the amount of braking, right? So that the drive experience is, is smooth, re- reasonably smooth. And thirdly, you want to avoid rear endings, right? So other human drivers would not anticipate, in, in many cases, don't anticipate a vehicle in front of them to come to a stop because they're also looking at that pedestrian, right? So if you have 10 human drivers that are driving around that, that, that AV and they're all looking at the pedestrian, they're all making that prediction, oh, no, there's no reason to stop this car, you know, this vehicle in front of me is not going to come to a stop, so I'm going to keep driving. They're not anticipating a braking maneuver. So imagine if AVs, especially in denser urban environments, constantly break when they shouldn't be breaking or don't have to break or when it's not expected, the, the amount of rear endings go up, right? So uh, roughly speaking, by the way, even today in, te- in test mode, 
about 80 to 90% of, of accidents with AVs are rear endings and side swipes by human drivers because technically the human drivers are at fault, of course, but it, it happens because AVs behave in unpredictable manner sometimes. And so this is a really important part of why, why enabling this kind of ability for AVs, you know, to, being able to make powerful predictions about pedestrians is so important for broader scale deployment, especially in urban environments. To me, putting on my investor hat here for a minute, you've got a great business in automotive, but I see a, a bigger business. Can this technology be applied to the security industry to assess risks at sporting events, like if you're in a, a European football or you're at a baseball game here in America? Could it be eventually deployed for that? Yes, it's a very good point. In fact, our investors invested in this company, not just because of our AV potential, but more broadly, right? You can imagine taking this, uh, our technology and applying it to many different applications outside AV, right? The specific example that you that you mentioned, right, security. It, yes, I mean, if, to the extent that that human observers can detect a threat, right, or or a potential behavior uh, of other humans, right, that might lead to something something bad. Yes, we can we can capture that, and our machine learning models can then scan a crowd of people, for example, and help detect risks or threats. The issue is. If somebody intentionally tries to hide their intent, right? So let's say you're a terrorist at an airport. Terrorists at an airport typically they don't look like terrorists, right? I mean, they're not there to to, to show, hey, I'm a terrorist, right? The behavior is trained to hide their intent. And if you ask a hundred humans to observe a camera feed of an airport check-in area, nobody can detect the pedestrian. We would all have, you know, very massive biases around this, and we would be picking the wrong individuals. But pretty much, you know, we, if somebody's hiding their tent, you, you can't really pick them out, right? And so our models wouldn't be able to do that either. So, so our technology does depend on situations where human observers can make a good judgment about, you know, somebody else's uh, state of mind or intent, things like that. In, that. in those cases, we can definitely deploy our technology. So think maybe retail environments, right? When, when people go shopping, they're not hiding their intent. They're, they're behaving naturally, right? And there's certain behaviors in a shopping environment that 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 you just demonstrate as a human, right? That that other humans can pick up on. If somebody is excited, for example, or they, they, they keep checking, you know, comparing two products. They're not quite sure which one to take, you know, uh, things like that. So there's things that you can imagine this applies to broadly to many, many different applications beyond AV. And that's the bro- broader potential, longer-term potential behind this company. And you have a proven track record for, for that approach. If you look at FLIR, they have that big government business and they have their automotive business and it's and they recently acquired and they had a really successful exit. So I think the future is definitely bright for the company because you're solving problems that have to be solved, but you're also doing good by society. You're saving lives, whether it could be at, in a security incident or it could be on the road. Like you're doing really good things by society. So I'm, I'm, I like it a lot. Thanks, Grayson. Yeah, I, I think the AV industry as a whole, AV technology can save a lot of lives and make a lot of difference, right? And But it has to be deployed the right way. And I think we're helping to make that happen in a faster way, in a more more acceptable way, you know, in, in a way that, that increases the likelihood of su- success. For example, imagine if one of these, you know, full stack AV players is looking to launch in, a, in an urban environment or city environment, but they're struggling with pedestrians. Well, 
we can go today and we can say, look, license our software, plug and play, so to speak. I mean, there's some some element of integration, but it's it's very light and very easy. And we might be able to accelerate your deployment and your commercial rollout, right? Say by a year or by two, just simply by using our software, because now you have more information to make decisions on, right? As an AV, right? Your AV fleet now is driving safer, smarter, smoother, more predictably, just because somebody's sort of deploying our software as part of their stack. And so the value that we can bring to the AV industry is material. And I think indirectly, of course, if the AV industry is successful, then we can be successful and society is going to be successful and the benefits of AV technology can, can flow. So I think, you know, we're all in the same boat here and we all have the same goals. It's going to take some time, of course. It's not going to happen overnight. The potential is there. And there's the potential for your technology combined with one of those operators to have the vehicles drive like a local, where it blends in and, and doesn't stand out. What are your thoughts on uh, on the, the autonomous vehicle industry as a whole? We had Microsoft's incredible $2 billion investment in cruise. It seems that money's flowing again, into and it's, but it's consolidating. Any thoughts on the current state of the industry? Yeah, it's actually, you know, in my... IEEE talk, I, I went into some of the details there, my, my views on, on available capital and how the industry might evolve. You know, remember that we there was lots of talk about a hype cycle inflation, right? In 18 and 19 and and how things are changing and how you know things are never gonna happen and people are getting pretty negative. I actually think the opposite. Uh, I believe that if you look back, uh, and I made those predictions at the beginning of last year in my IEEE talk, but if you look back over the last 12 months, there's been a tremendous amount of investment, sustained investment in the space, right? This investment hasn't hasn't slowed down. Uh, and we've had more permits issued for full self-driving uh, without safety drivers. Um, you know, the first deployment permit for Neuro in California, for example, as well. Aggressive partnering investments that are in the billions. There's an element of consolidation, of course, but that was inevitable. I think that's healthy and it's probably accelerated by COVID-19. And the reason for this consolidation is because it's not so much about capital scarcity. I think it's to do with talent scarcity. Um, so if you want to pull this off, it's a really hard challenge. And there are not many people in this world who can pull this off and, and make this happen. And so there needs to be a pooling of talent, right? The right people have to come together and have the critical mass of the right people. And so... Uh, a lot of the startups, for example, that performed or, or started in 16, 17, 15, 16, 17, uh, don't have the legs necessary, the talent to go all the way. So, so either they shut down or they get acquired. Capital gets reallocated. Talent gets reallocated. Uber, of course, merged its um, its Uber ATG effort, its AV effort into into Aurora. Again, you know, it's an attempt to consolidate talent, consolidate IP, consolidate technology. Um, to accelerate the development of this and increase the likelihood that it succeeds. And of course, you know, Aurora is an awesome home for the Uber ATG team, right? So Chris Urmson and the guys, uh, obviously some of the leading minds in the space, and they're going to be successful at this. So the developments that we've seen are all very, very positive. Capital is not the issue. There's a tremendous amount of capital out there, as we know, right? Not just for AV tech, but in general, and that's probably driving some of the bubble investing, but but that's a separate issue. But but in the AV space, and we're talking billions and billions of dollars of continued investment. It's essential. This is an essential piece of technology, but but it's not a piece of a technology that's that's going to be around for say 10 years, right? 
the ROI is measured over 100 years. So the type of capital that's going into this you know, is, is more patient capital, right? It's not the quick flip type capital. So it's, it, this industry has unique dynamics, but the, uh, um, the available capital and smart investors, quality investors exist to make this a successful uh, ultimate commercial deployment. And then we have the 10,000 pound gorilla that one day they're in, one day they're out, Apple and their project Titan. All the news that's come out recently and what I've been told, it's very real. What's going to happen when Apple enters this? They've got world-class engineers. They've got, as, as Jamie Dimon likes to say, a fortress balance sheet. And they have a brand that consumers like and trust. And the, and the big advantage, they also have the Apple stores with the genius bars. They've got the whole thing to go. And Tim Cook is an absolute genius when it comes to supply chain management. What happens when that becomes officially public? They're on stage. They roll it out. So I think Apple has the potential to be a massive player in this space, right? There's, there's no question. I do think that Apple thinks about these things in a different way, though. So Apple, for example, might not necessarily want to be the first or needs to be the first. In fact, they're they probably going to wait a little bit longer to perfect, say, the complete solution, which is, isn't just maybe AV tech, but it's the full the vehicle experience, the, the UI, everything else, right? I mean, they have a they have a holistic viewpoint around this. So when they offer a, 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 a an iCar or whatever they're going to call it, it's going to have to be good. It has to be unique, right? And they're obviously talking about battery technology, some unique battery technology that they're developing, probably based on partly the experiences with with their smartphone battery developments. They're, they're talking about software development, AV tech, right? So there, there's a lot of work that Apple is putting into this, but I don't think they're going to be necessarily the first to come out with this and they don't have to. And so they're going to bide their time. They're going to be smart about this, but when they go out, it's going to be big and it's going to have a big, big impact. And you know, who knows? I mean, this is still early days, right? I mean, Apple speculation is this is 2024, potentially 2025, something like that. That's quite a few years to go. And and it's possible that that Apple might at some point even say, look, you know, we're not going to develop a full stack AV solution in-house, but we're going to go and, and license this from a Waymo and Aurora and you know somebody else, right? But then we're going to do everything else, the whole experience around, around the vehicle. So Apple is placing smart bets and they're going to make smart decisions and they're going to make decisions about you know uh, make versus buy at the right time. But I think it will happen. I think... Um, it makes sense, at least as a, as a bet at this point. And then they can make decisions as the years go by. And the one thing that everybody can agree when Apple comes out with, if they call it the iCar, whatever they do, it's going to have big, fat, juicy margins on it. It's, they're not going <laughs> to put it out to lose money, just historically look at everything they do. And, and when Apple comes out with the 24 or 25 or whenever Tim Cook says, here we are, does that force the industry to say, uh-oh, Apple's got a profitable version of this vehicle. Does that force the industry to say, you guys got to get in tip-top shape and start generating revenue and figure out a path to profitability? Right. But this, this whole thing is part of this whole transformation in automotive, right, or in mobility. It's moving away from just, say, mechanical engineering, right, and the, the vehicle as, as a physical object and, and taking me from A to B. And it's increasingly about the experience and software and 
new ways of generating revenue, right? For example, charging on a per mile basis, you know, is, is much more profitable than just selling a, a, a unit of a car, you know, a car to a consumer and you make $500 profit once and maybe then make money on some service fees afterwards, maintenance fees. So the whole model, right, the whole mobility piece is evolving dramatically and, and Apple can play in that. And Apple, I suspect Apple will go high-end-ish, right? Not necessarily luxury, but it, it'll be high-end as an entry point, but aspirational for many or within reach in the same way that the iPhone was within reach for many uh, and then increasingly for more over time. But it's, it's it became an aspirational product as well, right? For many people that initially couldn't afford it, but it wasn't necessarily a luxury item. So I think they will they will um, be able to generate revenues from from an iCar that goes beyond just selling the the car to you and me, right? In fact, they might even come up with like a a rental model, right, or lease model, subscription model. You never know, you know, TBD. And I think that's part of what Apple will figure out in the coming years. In the meantime, they're putting all the different pieces in place. I mean, all these big guys are are placing big bets, right? For example, Microsoft's investment in cruise, right? The $2 billion investment just uh, last month. That's a big bet, not because Microsoft is going to necessarily make an AV, but Azure, right? The cloud platform uh, is integral to, or any cloud platform is integral to a successful, massive deployment of AV technology. Obviously, Google Cloud has Waymo, right? And Amazon, Amazon Cloud is, is in use by a number of these players already. Um, and they are certainly invested in Zooks, acquired Zooks recently, about six months ago or so, 12 months ago. But Microsoft really didn't have a committed AV partner, right? But it's so essential because the amount of data being generated by AV technology, right, or deployed systems, deployed fleets of AVs, the amount of data and the complexity of that data is enormous. And the way that data is stored and processed and the way machine learning models are developed based on that data is really essential, not just for AV tech, but for more and more industries, right? So if I'm a, a leading cloud provider, right, I need to make sure that I, I'm at the forefront of those developments. So AV tech is sort of a, a way for me to, it's a pioneering space, right? It's, it, it allows me to, to build my capabilities around my, my, my cloud platform, the tools I can offer, and how to you know, modify that, that cloud platform to make it useful for AI applications and use the AV space to drive that. And then as other industries come online with that, right, you just simply, you already have an amazing product that you can then sell to them and offer to them and make more money and grow your cloud platform. So the amount of data is enormous. The complexity of the data is enormous. The the types of bleeding edge work that's happening in this space that applies to many different industries later is, is the reason why Microsoft invested $2 billion in Cruise and Cruise committed to making the Azure, you know, cloud platform, it's its main platform. In addition to that, the deal also includes commitment from GM to make Microsoft Azure its its main cloud platform. And and there's tremendous amount of data that's going to be generated outside AV tech, just in terms of connected vehicles and, and the whole software within cars, right? It's all exploding right in that space. So there is the whole transportation mobility, right, automotive piece of the software push into software is also a reason why Microsoft invested in Cruise $2 billion. So AV tech is not just about AV itself or that, that robot taxi. It actually has much broader, bigger strategic implications 
that uh, these big players are placing bets on, right, or want to be part of or need to be part of for the future because it, it has implications for healthcare data. It has implications for all sorts of different different areas, right? And that's the reason why all these massive investments are happening in AV tech, not just for the potential of AV tech, but also broadly beyond that and what it can enable beyond that. You're right about Microsoft and Sasha Nadella has done one of the most incredible acts that I've ever witnessed as a CEO have done of turning Microsoft around has been incredible. And when you look at services and Apple services business is, is absolutely booming. And there's been all these reports, I stress reports because nothing's confirmed, that Apple's developing augmented reality glasses at, at some point. It's been rumored to come to me. It's like, okay, you're Apple. You're developing this augmented reality glasses. You take that augmented reality glass and now suddenly you put it in the car. So the car glass is augmented. And then Apple, with their incredible wallet app, can start selling you services. Okay, James, we're, let's just say you and I are going somewhere. Oh, hey, James, would you like to get a coffee? Okay, Apple, hey, Siri, take me to coffee. It processes the transaction. They get that microtransaction because right there from the glass. And then or the Apple talks about, let's say you're going to Yosemite, for example, can give you the history of Yosemite or all these different experiences that Apple can sell. And then that's going to pit Apple right up against Airbnb because Airbnb at some point is going to go into that. It's going to be an experience layer. So the App Store will go from your iPhone, your iPad, your MacBook. It's going to the car. And you're going to have an AR store in the car that's going to become a whole nother revenue stream for, for Apple. And it's going to get fun. Yeah, I think that's the long-term vision, right? It's very hard, though, to implement that vision, right? And I think this is where I suspect companies like Apple or Silicon Valley companies, so to speak, will continue to extend their lead, right? And, and continue to grab more and more of the value being generated out there. And it's a vision that requires a lot of capital, but also patience and the right way of thinking about it and the right talent. But yeah, it's going to be exciting. I think there's more and more convenience, more and more entertainment, more and more access to, to products and services that are currently more, more difficult to just get to. It's going to be all just tightly integrated, right? And going from A to B, isn't just a chore anymore, right? It becomes part of your daily uh, productive time and, and entertainment time and, and social time, which is which is exciting. And uh, yeah, I think Apple is uniquely positioned to try and enable that. And again, they don't have to make a final decision today, right? Exactly what they're going to be doing in-house or what, what's make versus buy, this whole make versus buy decision, right? They can work on all these different pieces. They can be patient. And when they're ready, they will launch. And they can make those decisions. I mean, one thing's for sure, they're not going to make their own vehicles, right? They're not going to build cars. They're going to contract that out. That's that's probably obvious. But they're going to work with it. With they're going to be very closely involved in the design of that vehicle and what it should look like and how it should be built and this, the spec. So they're going to be uh, obviously have a close relationship with someone like Foxconn to build that. But but yeah, it's going to be exciting. Uh, we'll see how that, all that kind of fits together eventually. The future of autonomy is going to be exciting. And James, we've covered an immense amount of ground on this, learned a lot, uh, found this conversation very, very insightful. For as we look to wrap up, what would you like our listeners to take away with them? I think the key thing is that there's, there's a couple things, right? So one is think more broadly about AV technology, right? In I used that example with Microsoft, right, and cloud platforms. Uh, AV tech itself, yes, it's hard. Yes, it's difficult to predict exactly, you know, how many vehicles or robotaxis or last mile delivery vehicles or, you know, autonomous trucks are going to be on the road by what by what time point 
And it's almost not not important to worry about exactly is it 2021 or 2022. 50 years from now, 40 years from now, 30 years from now, 20 years from now, nobody cares if it was 2021 or 2022 or 2023. And then think beyond that and also think beyond that and say, look, what does AV technology and all the effort and the, the know-how and the IP and the, 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 the tools that are being developed to make AV technology happen, how does that benefit society in other areas, right? Uh, how can that be deployed in and that learning, how can that be transferred to other applications. So I encourage people to think more holistically and more broadly about uh, what AV technology can do and what it can enable and the value that it can unlock. There are trillions of dollars just core AV technology, right? But then look beyond that. And that's the reason why Microsoft invested in, in Cruise, for example. So that's the, that's the first thing. And, and believe in, the, in the, the long-term future of this. It's going to happen it doesn't really matter exactly what year, but it's going to happen. It's going to be major. It's going to affect so many different uh, aspects of our lives. We're going to save many lives, et cetera, et cetera. The, the second thing is always keep in mind that driving or any technology deployed in a human environment, a human-dominated environment, has to be effective at interacting with humans, understanding humans, and perceiving humans, right? And so this whole social layer of driving and driving effectively in and around you know, around humans, pedestrians, cyclists, et cetera, is really, really important for a successful deployment. If you don't get that social layer right, AVs can't really function at a broader scale in urban environments or city environments. It's just not going to be comfortable for, for the passengers in these cars. It's predictability is not going to be high enough. So you're going to have lots of rear endings of frustrated human drivers that are driving around these AVs. Safety could be an issue. Getting from A to B can take a long time. It might not be competitive. The fleet economics might not be competitive, et cetera, et cetera. So there's lots of reasons for why this social layer, the uniquely human things that humans do so incredibly well are important. So it's really, and that's why the work we're doing at Perceptive Automata is so important, I believe. And it's an essential part of any solution. And we're offering it to anybody who wants it, right? It's a license model. And uh, uh, we can enable these deployments in a much more effective way and sooner. If someone wanted to learn more about your technology or to discuss a possible partnership, how can they get a hold of you? Just uh, go to our website, uh, contact at perceptiveautomata.com or uh, ping me on LinkedIn, uh, my LinkedIn profile. Uh, you know, you can Google me, uh, uh, search me on, on LinkedIn. It's pretty easy. I'm very active on LinkedIn and uh, I respond to incoming requests on that one. Uh, so yeah, we're, we're available. We would love to work with uh, with anybody who needs this. Yeah, so as we've heard, get in touch with James if you want to make your uh, autonomous vehicle drive like a human. Uh, the future is bright. The future is autonomous, and the future is human intuition for autonomous vehicles. James, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to come on the road to autonomy today. Excellent, Grayson. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Road to Autonomy podcast. If you've enjoyed listening, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Want to get in touch? Follow us on Twitter at Road to Autonomy or email podcast at B-R-U-L-T-E-C-O.com. The Road to Autonomy is produced by Brulte & Company. The views and opinions expressed on the Road to Autonomy podcast do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Brulte & Company. The content discussed in this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as legal, tax, investment, or business advice.